Bienvenidos and welcome to the histories of Mexico. Episode 10, Tabasco, Part 8. A Game of Reeds. As our melancholy Spanish guitar plays us out, credits and performance by Doug Maxwell, we can get back into the mood of our last episodes and the Spanish colonial time period we have been exploring. The music will hopefully complement the somber fact that this will be our last episode with El Adelantado de Yucatán and his family, as we have begun to grow rather fond of our energetic little Yucatec conqueror here on the show. We will not go into much detail on the Montejo's exploits within the actual Yucatan after it is fully pacified, as this is the Tabasco run of episodes, and those exploits will make more sense within the context of the story of the Yucatan. I must also quickly apologize for the long delay between episodes, as I had vacation and other personal matters that kept me from my ambition schedule, along with work, which is going well, thanks for asking. So my deepest apologies for making everyone wait, but in a way of giving back, I hope to make this episode twice as long, so hopefully the added length will earn me back some modicum of forgiveness. As always, you can let me know just how annoying it is to make you wait for new episodes through the email, thehistoriesofmexico at gmail.com, and I will personally apologize for taking so long in producing your beloved show. Now before we get into the De Montejo's family's last few years in Tabasco, let's quickly go over the first few years of their rule and the events of our previous show. In our last episode, we saw how El Adelantado de Yucatán, Don Francisco de Montejo the Elder, and his prodigious family began to set roots in the newly discovered peninsula, most importantly for our story, in the on-again, off-again home base of Santa Maria de la Victoria, starting in 1527 CE. We saw De Montejo, the elder, along with his influential wife, Beatriz de Herrera, highly successful military commander's son, El Mozo, vanguard general nephew, Francisco Armamento de Montejo, and his skillful lieutenant, Captain Alonso de Avila, all arrive and immediately set about settling and conquering the Yucatan Peninsula. After some initial struggles on the eastern Quintana Roo shores, El Adelantado would establish the first of many Villas de Salamancas. However, this initial push was rejected, and he would instead focus on conquering Tabasco and Campeche before striking at the bristling porcupine that was the interior of the Yucatan during this time. Together, the Montejo forces had come to relatively pacify the northern portion of the peninsula from both the external threat of the Maya and the constant internal strife, 
best represented by the many conflicts the Montejos would face with a certain thorn in the side, Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos. After numerous altercations over the governorship, Montejo the Younger had finally removed the Gallegos poison from the Tabascan bloodstream in 1535. Unfortunately, a larger, more hostile fish had reappeared in the pond, Pedro de Alvarado. Fresh off his disappointing campaigns in South America, the scheming Captain General was none too pleased to hear that his old comrade-in-arms, Francisco de Montejo the Elder, had slithered his way into the Honduran governorship while Pedro's back was turned. Before we dive into this brewing conflict in Las Cibueras, a.k.a. Honduras, between the Montejistas and the Alvarista forces, I had mentioned last episode that Mexico had recently unveiled a shiny new viceroy, the most excellent Antonio de Mendoza y Pacheco, who had just been appointed to lead the viceroyalty of Nueva España and arrived in Mexico City in 1535. Now, Viceroy Mendoza was the latest royal administrator sent by an increasingly capricious Council of the Indies and Emperor Charles V, who couldn't quite figure out how they wanted to feel about Hernán Cortés at all. In classic Cortés fashion, his standing would constantly cycle from boiling pot to bed of forgiveness and shower of favors. Unfortunate for him, he was currently feeling the heat, and the previous man sent to deal with Cortés, Nuño de Guzmán, had proven as corruptible as the audiencia he had arrived to police. So it would fall to Antonio de Mendoza to really go toe-to-toe with the conqueror of the Aztecs and serve as an effective check to the mini-Cortesian kingdom growing just south of Mexico City in nearby Cuernavaca, in the modern-day state of Morelia. Mendoza would make a slew of official actions towards this task, and of the attitudes he first takes when inheriting the office, there are two that relate to our focus in this episode. Those being the approval of the royal missive sent by Montejo ally in the court and newly minted royal treasurer, Juan de Lerma, naming Montejo the Elder governor of Tabasco, Yucatan, and Honduras, setting up the coming clash with de Alvarado, a Cortez agent. And you can see what Viceroy Mendoza might have been doing in this quick confirmation. The second thing Mendoza did wasn't so much an action as it was an attitude he adopted while in power. He was of the vehement belief that the military failures of the past meant that only a religious mission of the cross could provide the answer to the violent indigenous issue. He would spend the next 15 years of his reign attempting to throw every religious order and solution he could at the many issues of the unruly natives, most notably the Franciscan and Dominican waves of missionaries we will see pass through Tabasco during this time. This is important since up to this point, there have been very few people advocating for the rights of the natives in the Americas themselves, let alone anyone trying to learn their language or preserve their stories and culture, given that most of the men the natives had been interacting with were trained not to make peace but to wage war. Therefore, the physical arrival and presence of the clergy would begin the long process of stymieing the many abuses against the natives and codifying and preserving their cultures. In these efforts, the various monks, friars, and bishops who came to the New World would clash not only with the encomenderos and various property owners who participated in the reviled slave trade, but also with the very natives they were there to quote-unquote save. And we will see many of these confrontations flare up all over Nueva España, 
a situation helped along massively by the pro-native attitudes of men like Viceroy Mendoza and the various figures he would promote during his tenure in charge. And while I do say the abuses were stymied, we should also be painfully aware of the many abuses members of the clergy themselves engaged in, as we will see shortly. But in the first few decades at least, this was the exception rather than the rule, and many in the religious orders would not only look down upon the treatment being doled out by the generals and common soldiers towards the natives, but more effectively they would argue in the courts of Spain to produce some kinds of legal protections for their prospective new flocks, and this too we will see accomplished to varying effects. So let's first jump into this mission of the cloth before moving back to Montejo and the repercussions of the decision to confirm him as governor of Honduras. According to Dr. Diogenes Lopez Reyes, my most detailed, yet admittedly at times slightly contradictory or inaccurate resource concerning this time period, the Viceroy Mendoza would kick off a series of religious missions to the Yucatan by sending five Franciscan monks in 1536, led by the Fray Jacobo de Testera, an important figure in the establishment of the Franciscan Missionary Order in Mexico. Jacobo de Testera would be one of those guys who would work tirelessly his whole life against the injustices faced by the natives, having witnessed the beating to death of a native dock worker before his very eyes mere moments after disembarking his boat from Spain. He arrived in the New World in 1526 and was active in Michoacán and Puebla before coming to the Yucatán. Before he becomes famous in said Yucatán, he would arrive, according to Dr. Diogenes López Reyes, in La Victoria at the end of March and promptly left, along with his four brothers, for Champoton, where they met with the local Maya and began attempting to convert them. This work started off well, and the monks managed to build a humble church and even convince a few leaders to be baptized. After a few months of this relative success, another group of missionaries entered into the Chontalpa region of central Tabasco and met the villagers of Tixchel. Unlike their Champoton brothers, however, these men of the cloth apparently began extorting the Tixchel natives for gold and other valuables. This infuriated the Champotones, who now threatened their own missionaries, and fearing for their lives, Jacobo and his little party fled, ending the evangelical conquest of peace mere months after it had begun. Another group of five Franciscan missionaries would again be sent through La Victoria in 1537, and was said to have traveled to Chicalango, Champoton, and Campeche, but after a few months among the natives, would also be returned to Mexico City unable to push any further into the Yucatan. Despite these initial failures, the religious conquest of Mexico, much like the martial conquest of the Yucatan, would not be so easily dissuaded, as we will see the future pushes come in the form of one very important figure and brief guest on the show, Bishop Bartolomé de las Casas, who was also friends with Jacobo de Testera, and these guys would begin forming a clique of highly influential religious figures, many of whom would make up the Twelve Apostles of Mexico, twelve religious figures who were instrumental in the founding of the modern Mexican religious culture. But don't worry, there will be plenty of time to hear me work my hardest at making ecclesiastical history sound fun and engaging in the many episodes to come. So Bartolomé de las Casas is the only guy we should try to take away from all of this at this time, but Jacobo, along with being a very fun name to say, 
and popping up in future state episodes, is also a helpful example of the type of missions and men attempting to convert the Yucatan that passed through the port of La Victoria during these years. Religious missions such as these will continue to trickle along throughout the decades, with the Franciscans coming to claim the Yucatan, while the Dominicans will really find their stride in Chiapas and Guatemala. So let's jump back to 1536 and the Viceroy Mendoza's other order confirming Montejo the Elder as governor of Tabasco, Yucatan, Cozumel, and Honduras. This would see El Adelantado leave Mexico City for La Victoria, where he then sent ahead of him another trusted lieutenant named Alonso to clear his landing in said territory, this time one Alonso de Caceres. Caceres himself is one of the most active soldiers in the 16th century, and his list of participated conquest is impressively long, so we will hold off properly introducing him for one of those other tales, as for now, he was sent by El Adelantado to clear the way for his newly appointed governorship, a task Caceres was deemed more than qualified for, given his extensive resume. The territory of Las Gibueras, now known as Honduras, had been in bad shape since 1533, when its then-governor Andrés de Cercedo had run it poorly and practically into the ground. The Spanish only held three colonies at the time, Naco, Trujillo, and Puerto Caballos, while the rest of the territory was under the auspicious control of the rebellious tribe in the region, the Lencas Maya. Cercedo did what troubled administrators were supposed to do in these situations, he sought help from his friendly neighborhood, Adelantado. However, he would not call the one we are used to. Rather, the closest Adelantado to him was the one currently stationed in Guatemala. That's right, our old friend Pedro de Alvarado was the man to pick up the phone when Cercedo called. Never one to miss a good opportunity to take over someone else's land, Pedro de Alvarado happily accepted Cercedo on his offer and began pacifying Honduras in classic de Alvarado fashion, with cruelty and force. Next, he shoved Governor Cercedo into a corner, told him to keep quiet, and named the new mayor, judges, and commanders loyal to him in Puerto Caballos, sending his cousin Gonzalo de Alvarado y Chavez to seek a suitable site for a new settlement that connected the two territories of Guatemala and Honduras the two territories de Alvarado was now in thorough control of. Gonzalo de Alvarado y Chavez successfully identified a location, and the first brick was laid in the new city of Gracias a Dios in the middle of Lenca territory on October 1536, and the new city would become the seat of the Audiencia de los Confines from 1542 until 1563, at which point it was moved to Guatemala, and Gracias, as it is often shortened to, would eventually be eclipsed by future capitals Antigua and Comayagua within Honduras. The provinces of Tabasco, Chiapas, Yucatan, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and Panama would all eventually fall under the president of this Audiencia de los Confines, also known as the Audiencia de Guatemala, since the Audiencia would be stationed there for most of its existence. Shortly after founding Gracias a Dios in 1536, Pedro de Alvarado would leave for Spain in an attempt to personally appeal to the emperor and courts on receiving recognition for his many conquests and land titles, as well as permission to engage in new campaigns in the newly contested lands to the west of Mexico City, 
the region once known as Nueva Galicia, but is now known as the modern-day state of Jalisco. Because of these de Alvarado elements crawling about Honduras, Alonso de Caceres was ill-received when he landed, but took advantage of the absence of Gonzalo de Alvarado y Chavez, who had been left in charge of Honduras, but was stretched thin and currently off managing de Alvarado affairs in Guatemala, giving Caceres the time to recruit and equip more men. With these extra men secured, Caceres made a bold strike against Gracias a Dios and took over the government, jailing the mayor and judges, giving the post and lands to his own friends and allies, including the elder Montejo, to whom he sent a letter to in La Victoria, which saw El Adelantado hurriedly leave to claim his new seat in Central America. He arrived at Gracias a Dios on March 1537, fully replacing the De Alvarado government with his own, and began mining the rich gold mines that were discovered near the village, generating money which the elder desperately needed to cover his many mounting debts and further finance his conquest of Yucatan. Montejo would eventually have his wife Beatriz de Herrera and daughter Catalina de Montejo sail to Honduras in order to help manage their new stronghold. While El Adelantado and his family were setting roots in Honduras, Montejo the Younger had stayed behind in La Victoria to oversee affairs in Tabasco and manage the various Montejo estates. During this time, Diogenes claims a ship arrived from Spain carrying one Diego de Contreras and his two sons, Juan and Diego Jr., along with 20 soldiers, arms, and munitions. Being well-received by the younger Montejo, Diego sold the interim governor both the weapons and boat in order to begin trading along the budding colonial markets of Villarrica in Puerto Rico, Medellín in Colombia, and Coatzacoalcos in Veracruz, the three most important ports during the early Spanish colonial era. This would finally allow the modest territory of Tabasco to take its first tentative steps into the larger colonial economy by selling cacao in other colonies as well as back to Europe. Diego de Contreras would likewise hitch his family's fortunes to the Montejo cause and would come to serve as a much-needed ally to the Montejo clan in the struggles they would face together in Tabasco, Campeche, and the Yucatan. On March 25, 1537, while in La Victoria, El Mozo also established the yearly celebration of El Paseo del Real Pendón, planned to coincide with the anniversary of the Battle of Centla and the founding of Santa Maria de la Victoria. This Paseo del Real Pendón, or March of the Royal Banner, was a Spanish colonial celebration which consisted of a procession participated by the royal heads of government in accordance with some date of conquest. The important men of the city would walk down the main street or promenade and display either their wealth, opulence, piety, or strength in an effort to gently remind the natives and colonists just exactly who was in charge. The tradition would die out almost completely with the independence of Mexico in 1821. However, a dance of the same name is still celebrated in parts of the southern state of Guerrero, so we will certainly see its name pop back up when we get to that side of the country. Besides setting up royal celebrations in his territorial capital, this interim governorship of the younger Montejo gave him the opportunity to test his diplomatic medal when he was informed that a certain Captain Francisco Gil, 
and his deputy, Lorenzo de Godoy, had entered the Lacandon jungle in southern Campeche and settled a new community on the banks of the Ixtapa, the colonial name for the Usamacinta River. Captain Gil had then founded a town called San Pedro de Tenosique on June 29, 1538, a town which would one day become the modern town of Tenosique de Piño Suárez, where the Danza del Pocho is now held. The two military men had been sent by Pedro de Alvarado to populate the lands in his name, and they had left from Guatemala in April of that year, traveling by foot through the hot and hostile jungles of the Guatemalan highlands. Montejo El Mozo left to deal with this force, accompanied by 20 of his own men, and met with Captain Gil in San Pedro de Tenosique, showing him the documents proving the lands Gil had claimed fell squarely under the office of the governor of Tabasco, not Guatemala. After what must have been a tense standoff, Captain Francisco Gil recognized the validity of these documents and soberly conceded authority to El Mozo, relinquishing possession of La Villa de San Pedro de Tenosique to Montejista forces. With this swift action, the strategically vital Usamacinta region was saved from the clutches of the Alvarado forces by the level-headed efforts of Francisco El Mozo and the reasonable response of his fellow Francisco, Captain Gil. Thankfully for the Montejistas, El Mozo's gamble would continue to pay off as the two men subsequently agreed to work with the younger Montejo in pacifying the region until they received orders back from Guatemala on what new schemes their Captain Pedro was planning to send them off to next, orders which would be a long time coming now that Pedro was off in Spain licking the royal boot. The diplomatically successful Montejo the Younger then left Captain Gil in command of San Pedro de Tenosique and took Lieutenant Lorenzo de Godoy back with him to La Victoria, for as Montejo the Younger returned to the provincial capital, he began planning a third martial push into the Yucatan beginning with men being sent to Campeche aboard the new ship bought from the Contreras, under the command of Lorenzo de Godoy, arriving in Salamanca de Champoton at the end of the year, 1538. A few days after landing, the Maya kindly welcomed de Godoy and his men with a ferocious set of attacks that went from several tough days to arduous weeks. The newly arrived men soon found themselves up a creek thanks to the deteriorated state of the garrison's defenses and provisions, information which El Mozo either wasn't aware of or conveniently forgot to tell these men, in case it swayed their decisions to man said defenses. The hostilities lasted several months, and likely would have wiped out the poorly equipped defenders had reinforcements not arrived from San Pedro de Tenosique. According to Diogenes, El Mozo had sent orders to depopulate San Pedro and reinforce the besieged de Godoy in Champoton. Captain Gil left immediately and took a daring march north to the coast through hostile and unmapped jungles to reach his loyal lieutenant. His arrival in mid-1539 would be met by jubilant relief from the garrison and demoralizing anguish from the attackers, who had just spent months paying a heavy price in blood yet could only watch helplessly as the garrison became reinforced by Captain Gill's company practically overnight. Shortly after, El Mozo himself arrived with even more men from La Victoria, and with this overwhelming show of force, the native attacks subsided, 
and many of the rebellious leaders made signs of seeking peace and submission. With this victory, El Mozo would reestablish the settlements of Salamanca de Champotón, naming mayors, aldermen, bailiffs, and leaving Lieutenant Lorenzo de Godoy as commander-in-chief. El Mozo then returned with Captain Francisco Gil to La Victoria, who, having completed this mission for the Montejos, appears to have left for Guatemala, either on orders from his returned master Pedro or in hopes of ascertaining said master's whereabouts. Along the way, he would pick up his loyal lieutenant, Lorenzo de Godoy, leaving Francisco Armamento de Montejo the nephew as head of the Salamanca de Champoton garrison. Now, this is just my own speculation, but either the forces sent to claim territory for Pedro de Alvarado ended up pacifying the northern Campechan coast on behalf of the Montejos by pure coincidence, or old Francisco El Mozo was up to some serious, third-dimensional chess. I mean, it's not every day that you convince your rival's men to win territory on your behalf. It is very hard to say what actually happened and what was going on through everyone's heads, but in the coming games between the two warlords, it's interesting that their subordinates would work so well together, while the two men would clash so easily. The arrival of Gil and Godoy would finally pacify the foothold that would come to serve as the basis for the coming conquest of the Yucatan. While watching over Salamanca de Champoton in 1539, meanwhile, the nephew Montejo heard rumors of some nefarious grumblings, and eventually a full-blown conspiracy was discovered against Spanish rule, planned by some of the locals and their leaders. This prompted the nephew to seize said indigenous leaders and take them prisoners to La Victoria to face the justice of Francisco de Montejo y León El Mozo, son of El Adelantado. El Mozo hatched a clever little plan together with his cousin, proving he was as adept at subterfuge as he was at working with rival conquistadors. As the nephew Montejo brought the arrested caciques to meet with his cousin Montejo the Younger, they were received with feigned anger and outrage. El Mozo made them believe that their plot was evil, since they had declared themselves friends of the Spanish and many of them had promised submission to their king. As it turned out, this plotting against their rule was very much breaking with said promises of being friends and of submission. El Mozo told the prisoners that such an act deserved death according to his laws and rulers and thus he had no choice but to kill them. The prisoners predictably began pleading for their lives, and once they were nice and scared, El Mozo again began to speak, this time taking on a kinder tone, bubbling over with pity and understanding. He explained that he was not cruel or vengeful towards them, but rather a Christian man, and his God had instructed him to give them their lives, freedom, but most importantly, his forgiveness, for their very naughty plotting. He then invited the caciques to swear new oaths of fealty, while El Mozo promised on behalf of all the Spanish that no harm would come to them, as long as they never again broke their promises of loyalty, of course. This was undoubtedly very sweet of El Mozo, but let's quickly remember that the titles the Montejos held in the Yucatan came with the explicit stipulations from the court that they could not harm the natives through unnecessary cruelty. So it's highly unlikely that El Mozo had any real intention of executing any of these men at this time. However, the chiefs could not have known this, 
and so became visibly appreciative of their merciful treatment and returned to appease their fellow countrymen, as was the younger's plan all along. And this plan would continue to pay off when these leaders joined the future Mosul army that would embark on the fast-approaching third and final Yucatan incursion. The younger and his cousin thus fortified Salamanca de Champoton and from there pushed south into Acalan, the Lacandones, and Tixchel, all found in the highlands that make up southern Campeche and southwestern Tabasco. Unfortunately for the Montejo war effort, while El Mozo was pacifying southern Campeche, the soldiers left to guard Salamanca de Champoton would again begin draining out, given the hardships faced by the isolated men. A total of seven would be all that was left of the garrison at one point. Eventually, the desperate colonists decided to seek out the elder and explain the dire situation, for which task was selected Juan de Contreras, son of Juan de Contreras, he of the provided ship, men, and munitions, who set off west towards La Victoria in search of their salvation. The men believed the elder was in La Victoria. However, upon arriving, Juan de Contreras was sorely disappointed as he waited for El Adelantado to return for over a year. Meanwhile, in Honduras, the very same Elder Montejo the Champoton garrison was seeking had been busy developing his new colony with a firm hand, attempting to establish mines and farmlands, while sending his troops out under the command of Alonso de Caceres to pacify the local indigenous Lenca populations and turn their cities into new colonial communities a task Caceres would tackle with much aplomb, eventually founding such settlements as La Villa de San Pedro and the soon-to-be-vital Santa Maria de Comayagua, two important population centers within Spanish colonial Honduras. As you can imagine, tensions were rather high in the region, and several problems arose when El Adelantado ordered the execution of various Indians and a few caciques over the death of three Spanish colonists in the province of Serquín. This incited a huge Honduran uprising, led by a young Lencas leader named Lempira. The elder Montejo sent Alonso de Caceres with enough troops to defeat Lempira, but the Lencas would retreat into the Peñón de Serquín, or Mount Serquín in English. And here Lempira and his Lencas forces were well-provisioned and nigh impenetrable, forcing the siege to stretch out into a seven-month-long slog. Native reinforcements would arrive from Guatemala and Mexico, reinforcing the Lencas, and this rebellion would spark others across the territory, including in the newly established Comayagua, where El Adelantado had stationed himself and his family. He would be ferociously attacked by natives from Shamala, eventually forcing the colonists to evacuate, leaving El Adelantado and his fighting force to hold the city as long as they could. Things certainly seemed dire for the elder in Honduras. Alonso de Caceres, realizing the situation in Serquín was unlikely to change anytime soon, resorted to treachery to achieve his aims. He sent off a squad of cavalry to approach the Lenca stronghold, asking to speak with Lempira and promising these talks would soon end the violence. As the cavalry captain, likely Caceres, spoke of peace to the Lenca leader at the foot of the Peñón de Serquín, a crackshot arquebusier had hidden his instrument of death along the haunches of his horse, and now revealed his weapon, 
to expertly bury a shot into the forehead of the intrepid Honduran rebel leader, killing him instantly. The Spanish did indeed keep their word that the conversation would end the hostilities, since Lempira's death broke the back of the rebellion, and Caceres immediately turned around to reinforce the elder Montejo, who was still holding off a siege of his own in Comayagua, with a grand total of 11 remaining men. This enemy outside of Comayagua, having likely heard of the death of Lempira by now, did not give battle to the approaching Caceres forces, so El Adelantado was given the opportunity to take personal command and take revenge by campaigning for four months through the jungle to fully subdue Comayagua, Guasharagui, and the valley of Olancho. Lempira, meanwhile, would be forever memorialized as the modern-day municipality of Lempira was named in his honor, denoting the land where the Lenca Maya leader once bravely resisted his people's subjugation. Having just survived his most recent brush with death and finally overcoming numerous difficulties, El Adelantado sent his brother, Juan de Montejo, to Spain to inform the king of his many pains and accomplishments. Juan de Montejo had explicit orders to seek recognition from the emperor and court regarding these pacification efforts and confirmation over the titles of said lands in the name of the Montejos. Pretty much the same exact thing Pedro had left to do in Spain a few short years prior. Unfortunately for the Montejos, Pedro de Alvarado had spent those few years expertly pouring honey into the ears of the court, and it would be his turn to have himself named as governor and captain general of Honduras, with the king further showering him with titles to territory all throughout Honduras, seriously threatening and undermining the Montejista government in the region. Unaware of the coming bad news, El Adelantado pushed forward with his administrative plans to build a road passing from Comayagua to Villa de San Pedro, hoping the king would soon grant permission and allow the royal treasury to help fund the project. Instead, what arrived from Spain to Gracias a Dios in the spring of 1539 was the newly elected Bishop of Honduras, one Cristobal de Pedraza, who the elder received by building him a house and giving him his own town as an encomienda. Shortly after this display of hospitality and totally not a bribe, El Adelantado's worst nightmare safely docked from Spain in Puerto Caballos on April 4, 1539. As he disembarked, Pedro de Alvarado clutched in his evil hands the titles he needed to immediately demand the Elder Montejo hand over governorship of Honduras and all the cities he had fought hard to win or be imprisoned for denying a royal decree. This next part is my best interpretation of the events as relayed by Dr. Diogenes Lopez Reyes. Despite the Montejo the Elder having greased the wheels of justice to land in his favor, the honorable and totally unbiased Bishop Pedraza would be paid a personal visit by Pedro de Alvarado, likely in the very home El Adelantado Montejo had built for the bishop. We don't know exactly what was said during this meeting but it appears some sort of deal was reached, and with this subtle backroom assurance in hand, the Alvarado moved aggressively to reclaim his encomiendas from the Montejo, and the bishop, for his part, displayed his cards by judging in the provincial court on the side of the Alvarado, not only ordering the Montejo to return the encomiendas he had seized, as well as the new villas and properties the elder himself had established, 
but also pay 340 bushels of maize and 1,700 ducats, or about $7,650. Payments to be made for the gold extracted from the Honduran mines that belong to the Alvarado, with the labor of Indians who also belong to the Alvarado. De Montejo resisted the ruling, and Diogenes next claims the city of Gracias devolved into bitter debating and arguing, bordering dangerously close to violence, until the bishop finally mediated a compromise. In lieu of the fact that De Montejo had not handed over the government peacefully as instructed, the new bishop Pedraza decided to suspend his payment as governor and punish any who failed to recognize De Alvarado as the rightful ruler of Honduras and still harbored loyalties for De Montejo. With the help of the armed forces, the bishop and De Alvarado forces managed to take the city hall of Gracias a Dios from the holdouts of the De Montejo government replacing the town council with the Alvarado supporters. In its first official meeting, the new city council recognized Don Pedro de Alvarado as the rightful ruler of Honduras, and with this bit of elder abuse finally coming to a close, El Adelantado de Yucatán would leave having lost all territorial claims in Honduras, but was given the consolation prize of governorship of Chiapas, some encomiendas in the wealthy Mexican city neighborhood of Xochimilco, and around $2,000 in cash to help pay for his travels and debts. Now, a slightly different account does exist that paints Bishop Pedraza as a much more fair and active agent in the dealings between the two ambitious adelantados. For some context, it is helpful to know that by this time, De Montejo's luck had started to run out, and he had not been spending the last few months living the good life sipping piña coladas in the tropical sunshine down in Honduras. Survival was rather hard in Las Gibueras for the De Montejo clan, and the elder found himself dangerously close to the poverty line. After several years in the region, his men and supplies were running alarmingly low. The gold mines lay abandoned and unworked, and the native Lencas had taken quite the toll on anything made in Spain. De Montejo had been tirelessly sending letter after letter, pleading the court on behalf of his beleaguered men, who for three years had been living through considerable hardship, fighting to bring glory to the Spanish Empire. He had consistently been relaying his hardships and requesting more aid of any kind, but so far had received little in the form of a response. The courts no doubt recalling that little part in their deal all those years ago, about funding the conquests of the Yucatan at his own expense. Thus, Montejo and his men lived practically trapped within their own cities in the mountainous communities of Gracias a Dios and Valladolid de Santa Maria de Comayagua, unable to safely venture out even as far as the coast for too long. It would be in this dark state that de Montejo would hear of Alvarado's appointment back in Spain, which would soon take away his hard-fought territory and certainly didn't do anything to help morale. De Alvarado would return to the New World prepared, having heard while in Spain that his old comrade had taken his properties, and despite Pedro being determined to make the Montejos pay, he chose to play it smart by appealing first to the king. The king reassured Pedro that, of course he would look into it, of course, darling, just take a deep breath and sit back, it will all be fine. And then the king quickly wrote an order ahead of Pedro to Bishop Pedraza, stationed in Honduras, granting him all the powers and authority necessary to mediate this unavoidable dispute between the two powerful warlords, and mediate it peacefully. 
So, when Pedro de Alvarado arrived at the Honduran port of Villa de San Pedro and began moving toward the Elder Montejo's position, he was immediately intercepted by Bishop Pedraza and amazingly calmed and reassured that the bishop would settle this issue fairly. Bishop Pedraza then directed the now peaceful delegation towards Gracias a Dios and likewise convinced Francisco de Montejo, the elder, to come out of hiding in Comayagua and make his own way to the Honduran city of Gracias a Dios. Just outside of the city, stopping a league apart, the two parties would face each other and the two adelantados would approach in the middle with Bishop Pedraza nervously chaperoning the tentative meeting. The two old comrades took several long looks at the other and finally embraced, setting both sides at visible ease. It did not appear blood was destined to be spilled, and instead the two men unbelievably not only ate together, but walked and talked like old friends. Then engaged is what is referred to in the text as a juego de cañas, or a game of reeds. So what is this game of reeds, I can hear all of you asking. Essentially, we're talking about a Spanish version of a tourney and joust, and it turns out this was another holdout from the Reconquista, where knights and horses would train and practice formations while out on campaign in the plains of Al-Andalusia against the Muslim forces living there, by fighting with reeds or canes, sharpened at one end to simulate real spears and projectiles. The idea was to go through the motions of warfare and get both man and mount used to the idea of long, skinny objects violently flying at them from all directions. This exercise evolved through the ages as it began losing its military training aspects and began gaining a more recreational and showy style of engagement, with crowds quickly gathering to watch the splendid armor of the various knights and nobles glimmer and glisten in the sun as they went through their many mesmerizing formations and spectacularly charged at one another. The researcher Jay Rodriguez puts it best in his article, Historia del Deporte, or History of the Sport. Quote, Divided into two crews, some begin to attack the opponents with long canes, sharp as lances. Others, simulating an escape, covered their backs with shields and bucklers, chasing others in turn, and all of them mounted on the genet, on steeds so lively, so fast, so docile to the break, that I don't think they have a rival. The game is quite dangerous, but with this simulated battle, the knights get used to not fearing the real spears in the real war. End quote. This game seems to have soared in popularity, and pretty quickly there are accounts of its engagement to celebrate all sorts of victories and festivals throughout Spain and the larger Spanish Empire, such as Naples, Venice, and of course, the many lands of the New World. As far as what a game actually looked like, we can turn to another researcher, José Delito y Pinuela, a Spanish teacher who was active at the University of Valencia during the late 18 and early 1900s. And while, unfortunately for José, the rise of fascism led by the party of Francisco Franco forced him to abandon teaching, fortunately for us, it forced him to pursue history instead and led him to produce magnificently detailed works on the reign of King Philip IV, one of those Habsburg kings that likely pops into your head when you hear the words inbreeding royals. 
He would also enjoy writing explorations on how people spent their free time, especially nobles, and to this end, he produced some very detailed dives into our current center of focus, El Juego de Cañas, and he acquired a large amount of his own information from his own source, the 16th century Spanish equestrian expert named Gregorio de Tapia y Salcedo, who wrote many documents concerning all things equine and knightly including many rules regarding the game of reeds. So I will translate and paraphrase as best as I can from these very thorough descriptions. The game was played in a square and participants, always exclusively nobles and their retinues, would typically enter the square in pairs, one after the other, until three positions in the square were filled, the middle and wherever the ends of the square have been designated corresponding as the left and right sides. In this way, they went from one side of the square to the other, sometimes head-on and other times crossing each other, and all at full speed on their horses. The contest began with a group that began to parade through the entire square, while the others posted and waited for the opportune moment to attack, at which point they would launch their horses at a gallop and throw the reeds with the intention of hitting one of the opposing contestants. These reeds were themselves specifically made to be thrown and consisted of many joints along their body, giving the rider more points with which to grip and handle their instruments of sport. Some required all your strength, while others would easily break in the air, and all required relative skill to properly launch while on horseback. There were also varying kinds of reeds, with some being just thin sticks with dull points, since sharp points were considered unsporting and even specialty reeds such as bojordos or scrapers, which had heavy joints filled with sand or plaster. From Tapia y Salcedo, we know that the most skillful knight in the game was he that managed to avoid receiving blows and in turn hit his contestants with his own throws. Furthermore, a number of rules surrounded the game, such as the contestants making sure that no one in their crew or team was captured which involved losing control of your mount and finding yourself going too fast and among the group in front of you. Another rule was that the reeds must not be thrown until the last third of the circle is completed. But in my opinion, the most nerve-wracking rule would have to be that of taking care that the reeds never ever fall into the windows from which the ladies watch the game. That would be a loss of a different and unimaginable scale and magnitude. The reeds themselves also appear to have required the wearing of some kind of ring or brace, called an amianto, which helped stabilize them as they were launched, giving them the ability to fly straighter through the air. Sometimes the matches were one against one, others two by two, and sometimes one gang against the other, fighting all against all without order and no concert. The gentleman who threw the cane had to do it with all force possible, helping himself with the amianto that remained attached to his finger or wrist. And this same thing repeats until all the crews have run their reeds. The crews further carried out crossings and combined maneuvers with a very appealing effect that no doubt contributed to its popularity, although there was an inherent measure of danger involved with the mass of men, wood, and horses moving about in such sporadic fashions. In order for the matches to be fair, according to the laws of the game, they had to be done face-to-face -face or throwing the rods face-to-face -face, but from the side, 
And the saying, las cañas se vuelven lanzas, or the reeds become spears, refers to the times when the games grew violent, causing real fights, in which case the reeds were replaced by actual spears and swords. Now, these games were often played for festivities or celebrations, so in case things got out of hand in front of a bunch of families, the respected godfathers of the two sides, essentially the coaches, would have to get in the way and put an end to the skirmish. Once the skirmish was broken up, or perhaps before if the two sides were being particularly unruly, the organizers would close the doors to the square and release a bull or more, and the gentlemen who pleased could engage in bullfighting on horseback, the precursor to actual bullfighting and the indication that the party was at an end. As a quick aside, the Spanish Jeanette that Rodriguez referenced in that quote was a well-known Spanish horse, small, compact, and well-muscled, that proved ideal for the rigors of riding, particularly in warfare, and according to articles way more dedicated to horses than I ever will be, the Genet provided some of the foundational bloodstock for several well-known horse breeds in the Americas due to the Spanish military's extensive uses of them. The word Genet itself seems to derive from the French Genet, and from the Spanish and Catalan, jinete, which nowadays literally means knight, but originally referred to a light horseman who rides in a style known as a la jineta, a phrase best translated as with his legs tucked up. And this was in reference to the style of riding with a shorter pair of stirrups, which provided tighter controls over the horse. Both words, jene and jinete, appear to be taken from a corruption of a Berber tribe, the Zenata, who specialized in this particular style of riding. Eventually, the word came to refer to the horse rather than the riding style, and thus the Genet would become a staple in the various conquests the Spanish Empire would engage in during the next few centuries, and we have already met several of them as they charged through the fields of Centla on their way to seal victory for said empire. So in this account, despite having very good reasons to raise weapons against one another, violence was avoided thanks in no small part to the Bishop Pedraza's efforts. The two warlords basically just squabbled in the morning back and forth, then hung out and went to play the Spanish equivalent of golf in the afternoon, while their wives and a group of noble ladies that had made the journey from Spain began introducing the first signs of colonial courtly life to the drab and impoverished community of Gracias a Dios. The two Beatrices would host breakfast, walks around the local square, and balls for the beleaguered colonists of Honduras. And it is under these peaceful auspices that the two men would collect their grievances and present them to the court with Pedraza acting as the official judge. After the civilized and reasonable argumentation of the two ambitious men dragged on for days, absolutely no progress was made whatsoever. The elders stubbornly refused to give back any lands at all, and De Alvarado, now thoroughly unamused, upped his own ante to now include three years of back pay for the time De Montejo had quote-unquote rented his lands and workers, plus damages and losses suffered during said time, in addition to giving back all the stolen lands and titles. Bishop Pedraza eventually had no choice but to take all of the facts into account and pass the fairest ruling he could imagine, declaring that De Montejo return a portion of the seized lands in question, along with a 17,000 Castellan fine, or about $75,000 in today's time, 
by my estimations. After the ruling, however, Pedraza claims he was visited by the Montejo, who lays his cards on the table. Montejo reveals to the bishop the extent of his economical predicaments and further recognized the sensibility in relinquishing control of the territory in favor of someone who had the means and energy to pull the job off. Everyone was, after all, all on the same team. And a pacified Honduras was beneficial to the Montejo and his designs on the Yucatan. And so the Montejo soberly offered to give up his governorship peacefully, so long as he was given command of the city of Ciudad Real, a.k.a. the future Cristobal de las Casas, in the territory of Chiapas, which at the time fell under the government of Guatemala. He additionally requested to be granted the town of Xochimilco in Mexico City, which currently belonged to Pedro, in order to pay for his expenses in pacifying the land in Pedro's absence. All this, he said to the bishop, was also in an effort to give his daughter the dowry and marriage deserving of a young noble lady in the colonial period. Yes, that's right. De Montejo tried to use his daughter to get out of a debt. And it actually worked. You see, Bishop Pedraza next claims the following, quote, I took the woman, that is, the young lady Montejo, before the adelantado, uh, Pedro in this case, and put God before him and the great poverty of the said Montejo, and how he did not have the means for that daughter to marry, that if her father paid Pedro everything he owed, he would be left in a miserable state, perhaps even out in a hospital bed, and that the daughter would certainly not have enough for her wedding. So the words that I said to him were such that I made him show mercy, and he released all the rest that he was owed, and so left with his wife towards Guatemala and his home. And after a few days, the Montejo left for Guatemala, then from there to his new governorship in Chiapas. End quote. The sources go on to claim that not only did Pedro forgive all the debts he had been demanding, but further agreed to hand the Montejo the rule of Chiapas, as well as the encomiendas of Xochimilco, then went above and beyond by gifting his fellow adelantado $2,000 in cash to assist him in providing a proper dowry for his daughter. I know we have given a lot of flack to Pedro on this show, but he really does make it hard to hate on a guy when he goes and does something so darn human and benevolent. Now, this daughter, who was basically saving her family from economical ruin and potentially life-threatening danger, was of course the Lady Catalina de Montejo, who would find herself in much better standings once she got out of the deadly jungles of Honduras, and indeed would soon be happily wed. And by all accounts, this seems like a win-win situation for everyone. De Montejo would stubbornly retain his claims to the land he had given up for many years to come, but at the present, he managed to get out of the clutches of Pedro not only with his life, but a brand new governorship to add to his trophy cabinet, and even got paid to leave a pretty tough situation managing an underdeveloped Honduran colony. Pedro, for his part, was able to rid his own territory of all rivals and would set up his wife, Beatriz de la Cueva, to run the show while he went back to his main task of conquering poor and defenseless natives. In my opinion, De Montejo clearly got the better deal and really jujitsued his situation to benefit him the most. But that would be the end of the conflict between the two adelantados in Honduras, a slightly more interesting account, in my opinion, than Dr. Diogenes relays. And I will find it hard not to imagine how the two most powerful men in Central America at the time spent their mornings bickering in court and their afternoons likely sipping rum and playing a nice game of reeds. 
in stark contrast to the typically bloody affairs experienced with the natives who showed no interest in participating in any games of any kind. But I do also love the similarity between this game of reeds and the flower wars that the Aztecs made famous. We will definitely explore more of these connections when we reach that point in the discussion of the Aztecs, but let's move on from this highly engrossing topic and get back to the narrative regarding Tabasco. It would be through some version of these events that by the start of the year 1540, a fairly beat up but still breathing Montejo the Elder set his new sights on Ciudad Real, the current Spanish capital of Chiapas to take over his fourth new governorship of a territory. Before he took up his most recent appointment, he would swing by Tabasco, where in late 1539, he witnessed his daughter get married. Then he installed an interim mayor, Juan Juan de la Desma, to rule while he was busy administering and quelling Chiapas, while his son was soon to be sent to take control of the Yucatan front. It would also be during this visit that he received the troubling news from Juan de Contreras, who told him all about the troubles in Salamanca de Champotón. El Adelantado formulated his strategy and mobilized his forces. He directed the ever-handy de Contreras family to assist El Mozo in the coming endeavors, while the elder departed for Ciudad Real, a.k.a. the future San Cristóbal de las Casas, to personally mobilize more men for El Mozo's campaign. To that end, he recalled his son to the capital, and El Mozo had been licking his own wounds in eastern Tabasco after making minuscule gains in southern Campeche, and ultimately found himself unable to dislodge the rebellious Maya from their isolated jungled strongholds. The elder gave his son instructions on how to take Campeche the way he had taken Tabasco, by running to Mexico City and begging the viceroy for more money and men. And so El Mozo left to meet with Viceroy Mendoza in early 1540, but not before his father officially bestowed upon him the royal mandates given to him by the Emperor Charles V as Adelantado de Yucatán way back in 1526. As all three Franciscos de Montejos, the elder, the younger, and the nephew, left for their prospective missions, they might not have known it, but it would be the last time this trio of Franciscos was gathered together in Tabasco. While the two cousins will soon be back to prepare for their final expedition out of Tabasco, the elder will leave for Chiapas, then head back to Honduras, and not return for nearly six years. So we are approaching the end of the official Montejo actions in Tabasco. As the rest of their exploits will be centered minorly in Honduras and Chiapas, then majorly in the Yucatan. But let's not get ahead of ourselves and observe as Francisco de Montejo y León and his cousin arrive at the provincial capital in mid-1540. El Mozo rolled into town wearing the recognition of his prestigious father's name, the bestowed title of El Adelantado de Yucatán, and a bit of his own self-earned luster, thanks to his many martial victories, the news of which had by now spread across the Spanish colonies. Thus, the young captain was well-received by the High Society of Mexico City, along with the Viceroy Mendoza. Once again, the Viceroy did not hesitate to assist the Montejista cause, with aid in arms, munitions, and supplies, along with several contingencies of native Nahuas, Mexicas, and Tlaxcaltecas, who were attached to his growing company. During his stay in the capital, El Mozo would continue the Montejo tradition of politically smart and advantageous marriages by tying the knot with Doña Andrea del Castillo, a noble lady of Mexico City and daughter of the influential counselor Don Álvaro del Castillo y León, and Doña Beatriz de Sanabria, 
Yes, Beatriz was a very popular name in those times. I'm glad you asked. El Mozo then gathered his new wife and men, marching first to Oaxaca to arrange more forces, then headed to La Victoria, where even more men arrived from Chiapas, sent by his father, bringing his total number of men to 200, according to Dr. Diogenes. Among them were, of course, Juan de Contreras and his sons, Diego and Juan Jr., as well as Francisco de Montejo Armamento, the nephew. In December 1540, this Mozo army set out of La Victoria via the river Palisada, and the most significant thing to say about this departure will be that it was the last time, as far as I can tell, that either El Mozo or Francisco Armamento, the nephew, would ever set foot in Santa Maria de la Victoria. After leaving for the last time, El Mozo and his cousin passed into the Bay of Tris, or Terminos, arriving on December 24, 1540, in Salamanca de Champoton, received with disbelief by the near non-existent garrison. Some native warriors would soon arrive to join the growing forces sent by the friendly caciques who still remembered El Mozo's show of mercy performed the year before. The following year of 1541 saw El Mozo unleash his gathered forces upon the northern coastal communities of Sijochac. Then in August, he enters the province of Quimpech and Acanul, taking the town of Calquini and spent the rest of the year founding the Villa de San Francisco de Campeche in the top right corner of the state of Campeche. This Villa would be established in the same location that the elder Montejo briefly established as Salamanca de Campeche, but was now called San Francisco in honor of said man, and it would be completed on October 4, 1541. This community would soon swallow up all the surrounding towns and villages as it grew in size and importance, and is one of the most important cities in Campeche to this day. Even more men would soon arrive from the southern state of Oaxaca to bring the total number of soldiers to 400. The now formidable Mozo army finally set off encountering the Yucatan cities of Tenabo and Hekelchacan, which they made submit before moving next through Zibalche, Calquini, and eventually reached the site of Uman, stopping to rest within a day's march from their ultimate goal, the ancient city of Ichkansiho, also known as Tol. Here in the ancient city of Tol, on the 6th of January, 1542, Francisco de Montejo y León founded the Villa de Mérida, named after the Spanish city whose Roman ruins reminded him of the ruins he now saw in Ichkansiho. El Mozo proceeded to name mayors, judges, and bailiffs for his new settlement. Unlike his previous incursion where he was ran out of Chichen Itza, this time the Spanish would be recognized as a supreme power in the land, when a few days after arriving at To, the cacique of Mani and leader of the Tutulxijues would not only submit, but further recognized his authority by requesting that De Montejo y León serve as judge in an indigenous dispute against a rival leader, one Nachi Cocom, the leader of Zotuta, and leader of what was left of the Cocomes Maya, the ancient enemy of the virtuous Tutulxijues. This recognition by the Maya as the arbiter for inter-tribal disputes would establish him, and by extension the Spanish in Mérida, as the highest law in the land, essentially a halak unique of a Spanish casiazgo. Thanks to the diplomatic foundation El Mozo had established previously with the natives of Champoton and Campeche, he managed to successfully navigate this political situation and thus establish the first truly permanent Spanish colonial presence in the interior of the peninsula.
While the younger Montejo would settle in to secure his new Yucatec holdings and begin to establish a true Montejo stronghold and dynasty, his cousin Francisco Armamento de Montejo, the nephew, left shortly afterwards, seeking a safe land route to the eastern shore of the peninsula, along the way founding the Villa de Valladolid near the Chihuahua Lagoon and Cenote in 1542, moving on afterwards to continue towards Cozumel and Bacalar. This city of Valladolid would be moved the following year further inland to the Mayan town of Zaki, where it and its famous convent still rest to this day. Because of the speed of news during this time, it would be in the same year of 1542 that news reached the Yucatan concerning the death of Pedro de Alvarado, who had actually died on the 4th of July, 1541, far away in a village named Tripiteo during the War of Mixton in Nueva Galicia, now the modern-day states of Jalisco, Zacatecas, and Aguascalientes. The governor of Guatemala and Honduras, as well as conqueror of countless lands and peoples, would be surprised by death when his loyal and trusty horse threw him off in a rare fit of fear and ended the tireless conquistador's life, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Ironic to think that the horse which would be so integral in the various conquests of Mexico, contributing to the death of countless natives, also took out one of the most cruel yet skilled of all conquistadors, Pedro de Alvarado y Contreras. How deliciously ironic. Dr. Diogenes claims that Montejo the Elder would honor his deceased rival's memory by traveling to Guatemala and attempting to wrestle his seat as governor from de Alvarado's poor defenseless widow, Beatriz de la Cueva. Beatriz, however, proved to be neither poor nor defenseless and gave de Montejo's attempted seizure of power a proper smackdown. This podcast will honor Pedro's cruel life in our own way sometime in the future, where we will cover his many evil deeds and discuss in detail the life of a scheming man this show absolutely loves to despise. But the Lady Beatriz de la Cueva remains a fascinating figure in her own right, who managed to run her deceased spouse's estate with even more tact and cunning than her scheming husband had. As the first and probably only woman to wield power in colonial Spanish America when she was confirmed into the role by the Council of Guatemala on the 9th of September, 1541. She seems more adept at administration than her conquering husband and was on track to lead a very successful run as a unique female figure in this corner of the male-dominated Spanish Empire until an actual volcano decided her time on this earth was at an end and cut her promising historical career short before she had a chance to really start rocking the patriarchal boat. She was also one of nine brothers and five sisters, the eldest of which, Francesca de la Cueva, just so happened to have been Pedro's previous and now deceased wife. So if I were you, I wouldn't be surprised at all if you see her pop up in some future supplemental episodes. Now things do begin to get a bit murky here, as El Adelantado would return to Chiapas following what Diogenes claims was a failed takeover of the Alvarado's vacant seats in Guatemala and Las Jibueras. He goes on to state that while in Chiapas, he would come to face some misadventures with the new power player in the region, ousted from Chiapas as well and forced to return to La Victoria. This power player would be none other than Bartolomé de las Casas, who will make his brief but important appearance very shortly. However, I say things get murky here since the line of governors of Chiapas is hard to pin down, and so there is no way to verify if any of the good doctor's claims regarding this aspect of the elder Montejo's career are true. 
Perhaps when we get to Chiapas, we will clear more of this up. But for now, it's safe to assume that the Demontejos controlled a large expanse of land during this time, most likely including Chiapas. And so it would be in the future city of San Cristobal de las Casas that the father finally got word of his son's victorious campaign in the Yucatan and triumphant establishment of Mérida. No doubt realizing the advantageous position his family currently found itself in, despite losing out on Honduras, El Adelantado once again seized the moment and sent Alonso López, brother of Beatriz de Herrera and thus brother-in-law of El Adelantado, to the Royal Council of the Indies in June of 1543, with a flurry of requests to both council and king in regards to the newly established community of Mérida. Request which, through our historical lens of hindsight, we can interpret as de Montejo attempting to lay the foundation of his envisioned empire. The request included, in no particular order, that the Villa de Mérida be elevated to the category of city and granted a coat of arms, that Francisco Montejo y León, son of El Adelantado, be granted the title of Captain General of the Yucatán and guaranteed the rights of the newly established encomiendas and slaves to work it, that a hospital be built in Mérida, that the hospital be built with royal funds, and that an exemption from taxes on the importation of goods be granted to Mérida for 10 years. Two more requests were included that really show the extent at which Montejo wanted to go to entrench his family in the local positions of power. First, that the position of Adelantado de Yucatán, already a lifetime appointment, should become hereditary to the Montejo family, meaning El Mozo would become Adelantado de Yucatán upon the elder's death a role the younger Montejo had already been successfully filling for several years now, in pretty much everything but official title. The second interesting request made was that the Yucatan, Tabasco, and Cozumel be annexed to the proposed Audiencia de Guatemala, ceasing to belong to that of Mexico. This Audiencia would cover lands stretching past the modern borders of Guatemala, including Honduras, El Salvador, and Panama, and it would also often be referred to as Las Audiencias de los Confines, which we have already spoken about a few times. This request to move his lands under a new Audiencia was made, according to Dr. Diogenes, because the man in line to take the presidency of the shiny new Audiencia de los Confines, Alonso Maldonado Diaz de Ledesma, just so happened to be the husband of one Catalina de Montejo, the only daughter of the Adelantado, and his wife Beatriz de Herrera although this claim is rather conflicting with other sources I've dug up. The man did indeed exist and ran the Audencia, but there are conflicting accounts whether he truly was the young Lady Montejo's hubby, but I'm inclined to believe this to be the case. Maldonado had come to hold the ultimate position of power in the territory of the Confines soon after the central figure of the Alvarado clan, Pedro de Alvarado, who likely would have been a strong candidate for the position of president of the Audencia himself, had suddenly died in 1541 in Tripiteo, and his capable wife, who had actually been running the show in Central America, was taken out by a volcano the following year. And soon, the rest of the Alvarado's less capable brothers and other obscure family members began to evaporate back to Spain in order to fight over the inheritance money like proper squabbling families crawling out of the woodworks to inclaim inheritances tend to do. It would fall to Guatemala's first bishop, Francisco de Marroquín Huartado, to serve as interim governor until Alonso de Maldonado was given the title of Captain General of Guatemala, a title that would precede that of governor but practically served the same functions. 
Captain Maldonado had also received a glowing review from the first acting bishop of Chiapas and previously mentioned new power player, Fray Bartolome de las Casas, seemingly flexing his influence even from an entire ocean away. Maldonado seemed to shoo in for the job, regardless of Bartolome's endorsement, given that his resume also included serving in the slightly less corrupt Second Audencia de México and as provisional governor of Guatemala in 1535 to oversee the initial transfer of power to Pedro de Alvarado. So we can see through this proposed annexation that the sly elder seemed to be making a play at both further shoring up his territorial gains and formalizing his holdings, which now officially included Tabasco, most of the Campechan coast along with the eastern part of the Yucatan, specifically stretching from Merida towards the coast, the island of Cozumel, and Chiapas, while parts of Honduras were returned to him with the death of Alvarado and friendly agents now at the head of the Audencia. And now he seemed to be adding Guatemala to his growing collection and appeared to be positioning all his holdings under a friendly court of law through both marriage and royal decree. The request sent with his brother-in-law, Alonso Lopez, would ultimately be accepted the following year of 1543. However, its implementation would not go through until 1550, by which point the Montejo's dream empire was back to being nothing more than a dream. If we were to take a peek at a map at this point in 1542, however, we would realize that this was the closest the elder Montejo had ever come to his and Alonso de Avila's initial strategy of encircling the Yucatan in a ring of friendly territories to first conquer, then fortify the highly sought-after interior lands. It is by my amateur estimations that during these years we see the pinnacle of de Montejo's little empire, since from here on out we will see his power slowly start to wane on nearly every front, and he would ultimately fail in his life's mission to establish a de Montejo-ruled royal province of the Yucatan. I'm aware this and several stories I've just talked about are pretty far from the borders of Tabasco, so yes, I am breaking my little rule about said borders. But if you will allow me this indulgence into the stories of other states, I am simply attempting to flesh out the world for you since during this time all the borders were still being redrawn and argued over. So in the hopes of not breaking up a good story, I will continue on with what I got but do not be surprised if we retread some of this ground in the state episodes yet to come. Let's talk about Chiapas first, since on February 2nd, 1545, Fray Bartolome de las Casas, newly appointed third bishop of Chiapas, disembarked at Santa Maria de la Victoria and received as cold a welcome as possible in the hot tropical weather of the Tabascan capital. This reception was due to his very public and well-known leanings towards the natives and slaves in matters of legal dispute, attitudes which were anathema to the goals of your average slave master living in colonial Spanish America. Given the mood of the crowd in La Victoria, Bishop de las Casas spent zero time taking in the sights, and ten days later, on February the 12th, 1545, he hastily set out to take his holy seat, passing through the regions of Jalapa, Tacotalpa, Teapa and Itztapangojoya, eventually arriving in Ciudad Real, provincial capital of Chiapas and location of his new cathedral. This third elected bishop of Chiapas, oddly enough, would be the first to actually serve in his role, since the first two men elected for the position would die before ever being confirmed in their designated cathedrals. De Las Casas would also leave La Victoria just days before the future fourth bishop of Chiapas, Tomás Casillas, 
also showed up with various other religious figures arriving in the following days. This wave of missionaries would be another encouraged by the Viceroy Mendoza in his efforts to claim the native minds with religion. This time around, it would be the Dominicans who would take their stab at converting the pagan people residing in the newly won highlands. Chapa, as you see, had been increasingly a hotbed of activity, which will be gone over in better detail during the Chapin run of episodes. But to make a long story short, the Catholic Church back in Spain, and Viceroy Mendoza himself, still fully believed that a conquest of the mind and soul would ultimately prove more effective than conquest of the body. And so had been gearing up for a strong religious push in all directions, which included Chapas, the lands now considered the frontier of Mayan interaction since the Yucatan had seen years of exploration and increasing colonization. This third bishop of Chiapas, Bartolomé de las Casas, is also referred to as the Defender of the Indians and was initially selected to spearhead this ecclesiastical incursion due to his benevolent leanings as well as his founding of the Archdiocese of Santa Maria de los Remedios, or Isla Rica, in 1538, with jurisdiction over Tabasco, Yucatán, Cozumel, and the Caribbean islands. We already met Bartolomé in Cuba when he took in a wet, starving, and naked Bernal Díaz del Castillo after the unfortunate chronicler stumbled into his estate at Yaguarama after facing the fury of Huracán following his adventures with Hernández de Córdoba and his failed expedition in 1517. See episode 7 if you want a refresher of that story. However, the Bishop Bartolomé's greatest impact likely came on November 20th, 1542, when thanks, to considerable, when, thanks to considerable efforts on behalf of the bishop, the Emperor Charles V signed Las Nuevas Leyes, or the New Laws, a series of royal documents which, among other things, removed certain corrupt and cruel officials from within the Council of the Indies, and more importantly, attempted to eliminate the encomienda system altogether. The new laws included such rules as making it illegal to take anyone born native to Mexico as property, and stipulating that certain encomiendas would revert back to the crown at the death of its holders. Additionally, it attempted to exempt the few surviving Indians of the Caribbean islands, such as Hispaniola, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and Jamaica, from all requirements of personal service, all in efforts to stave off and eventually abolish the practice of encomiendas and slavery altogether. Practices which de las Casas, along with many in the Dominican order, had come to abhor and condemn. Now, as you can imagine, these new laws weren't exactly a smash hit back in the colonies, with many mayors of the New World refusing to follow them, and most administrators throughout the various villas and garrisons simply turning a blind eye to the breakers of the law and kept things moving smoothly and peacefully. In the few places it was enforced, riots and lynchings predictably broke out. However, the disapproval was not just felt by the slaveholders and encomenderos, but also by the abolitionists, including de las Casas, who were also not very excited about the laws, as they were worded to include blatant loopholes, which would, in time, allow slavery to wiggle its way back into the apple of society, one way or another. For example, there was a law that made it illegal to use native Indians as carriers for transport, which is good. Unless, of course, no other transport was available, in which case the law allowed for an exception, which is not good. All in all, it's pretty safe to say these laws were as toothless as they were inflammatory and nearly impossible to enforce within the American colonies. 
De Las Casas would preach against these laws, despite being instrumental in their passing. Yet these attitudes, including other equally incendiary ones, such as new laws ought to be colonized with peasants and not soldiers, would earn him the cold reception he received in La Victoria in 1545, and pretty much everywhere he set foot within colonial America, hence why his stay in the colonies would be so brief. Nonetheless, he had now been granted chapas under his ecclesiastical purview, and according to Dr. Diogenes, Bishop de las Casas inevitably would come to clash with El Adelantado, who was still holding sway in Chiapas at the time. The seasoned governor realized the extent to which the energetic new bishop would prove a nuisance when de las Casas evangelized the community of Tecolutlan and Verapaz without first seeking the governor's permission, simultaneously and publicly undermining the elder Montejo's authority and testing his patience. Later, the well-meaning yet troublesome bishop would engage in the unspeakable act of preaching in the public square to the natives about their self-worth, using words like salvation and free will. The last nail in the coffin of the bishop's short career in Chiapas would come after a heated dispute with the encomenderos and slaveholders of his diocese over the treatment of the natives as, well, you know, slaves and property. Since appealing to their morality proved futile, the radical bishop attempted to excommunicate the lot of them, but this too failed when he was not supported by the frightened leaders of the clergy throughout the New World, most of them of rival orders, and he finally had to retreat due to the mounting personal dangers which were promised to be looked into by Montejo. Don't worry, Barty, he certainly said. I'll get right on dealing with those angry guys holding tar and feathers. Just sit right there and don't move till I get back, okay? Bartolome, recognizing the unmistakable sounds of pitchforks being sharpened in the distance, instead opted to escape to Gracias a Dios in Honduras and ultimately resign his bishopric, returning to Spain to fight the good fight back in the safety of Europe. Before we leave Bartolome de las Casas, it's interesting to note that his comportment apparently drew so much ire from his contemporaries and superiors that it is said to this day many Catholic records do not recognize his hierarchy in the recorded number of bishops of Chiapas, skipping Bartolome de las Casas altogether. The guy didn't do an amazing job, I'll be the first to admit, but I don't know if he did remove your name from the history books bad. He definitely did better than the first two men who literally died before ever showing up for a single day of work. But let's not digress too much on an already lengthy digression. Bartolome de las Casas, protector of the Indians, is certainly an interesting figure we will have to hold off on discussing for another time. He is often called an early advocate for the natives, and indeed it seems that after he saw the effects of slavery firsthand, reformed, and spent the rest of his life fighting for the native cause. So we will definitely return to the man whose life and accomplishments inspired the naming of one of the most important Chapin cities in the Highland State for another time and get back to the Montejo's final act in Tabasco. De Montejo himself would soon be replaced as governor of Chiapas, either in 1545 or 46, with Chiapas itself falling back under the jurisdiction of the Captain General of Guatemala until the Treaty of Córdoba in 1821, and it would be the next in his many hard-fought holdings to be taken from his command. At the time, this likely did not seem like an issue, since Guatemala was still under De Montejo influence, and so he traveled east to reclaim his holdings in a much more welcoming Honduras, now that both the De Alvarado elements had been thoroughly removed and his son-in-law was the current head of the supreme governing body in the land. 
Having received nearly every concession from Spain and believing everything to be in stable state, he got on a boat with his wife and daughter in 1546, headed for a tour of his Tabascan and Campechan holdings, ultimately intending to head for Merida and his son's budding little kingdom in the middle of the Yucatec jungle. Thus, the elder Montejo landed in La Victoria in late 1546, and, as was tradition for him by this point, walked into some troubling news. According to Dr. Diogenes, it would be the current interim governor, a man named Alonso de Bazan y Herrera, and his judge, Alonso Vallon, who were the most recent men abusing the rights of the Montejo family while said family's attention was focused elsewhere. This go-around, the two men had commandeered a parcel of land without even asking if it was up for commandeering. Then, to add insult to injury, they refused to pay fair market price for the seized land after the Montejos reluctantly agreed to sell. The land in question belonged to Montejo's nephew, but no, not the nephew we have been following, as that would have been incredibly foolish on the naughty Alonso's part. But instead, a child of only a few years of age who couldn't possibly fight back, so they were quite literally stealing candy from a baby. Unfortunately, it had been a long time since a Montejo had been giving orders in La Victoria, and despite being the official guy in charge on paper, he was quite far from his troops and son in Merida, and even further still from Guatemala and the Audencia he had so desperately wanted to join. Still, the elder would not stand for this and furiously drew up some charges of account mismanagement with orders to arrest the two men who also happened to be serving as treasurer and accountant for the territory. After this little outburst, the elder looked around and realized no one had actually moved or done anything. Okay, that didn't go as planned. Well, surely someone would do something about it. And that someone was not going to be El Adelantado. And oh, would you look at the time. He was late for a meeting with his son in Merida and had to be off. How terrible. Oh, well, let's settle this later. Okay, goodbye. And that appears to have been that. The case was sent off to the Audencia de Guatemala and El Adelantado kept it pushing, not wanting to sit around in enemy hands waiting for someone to present a knife to his back. Meanwhile, Alonso de Bazan y Herrera and Alonso Vallón went back to pacifying the ever-rebellious Simantecos in Cunduacán, as well as further stealing sweets from any small child they could find along the way. We will likely see these two pop back up again, but for now they appear to have gotten off with only a stern talking to and nothing more, a further sign of the waning power of the elder Montejo in his once loyal capital. When Francisco de Montejo the Elder hurriedly left Santa Maria de la Victoria in early December 1546, he could not have known it, but it would be the last time he set foot in the territory that had given him his great start. Everything had started for Montejo in this often neglected and backwaters territory, and now he would be leaving it behind after nearly 20 years as its official governor. He would not yet lose said title of governor, but as far as can be told, he would never again set foot in la Victoria the site of his victory in 1519 at the Battle of Centla, and many clashes with Gallegos, and various planned incursions to claim the Yucatan, all left behind in his anticlimactic exit after dealing with some pretty minor property disputes with dissatisfied subordinates. As Diogenes relays, de Montejo and his family would arrive in San Francisco de Campeche on Christmas Day, 1546, jubilantly received by his men and supporters. This would be the first time the elder had set foot in the re-established city named in his honor, and the local Tallez and Cupules Maya 
too, would celebrate both the holiday and his arrival by exploding into a region-wide rebellion all along the western coast of Yucatan. El Adelantado would spend the next several weeks utterly consumed with the task of subjugating the raging inferno of rebellion. By this point, the elder was living up to his name and probably beginning to feel his age. So while he did not participate in any of the actual fighting, his ever-sharp mind was never far from the action, directing troops and supplies, and showing mercy and forgiveness once the fight had been beaten out of the natives. All in all, his journey was delayed a full six weeks, but he was finally able to proclaim the coastal axis of Merida free of hostile elements, and continued on to finally lay eyes on his son's crowning achievement. The long-awaited family reunion would occur in February 1547, when El Adelantado arrived at Merida and was finally able to embrace his triumphant son and behold everything he had done in his father's name. The town of Merida had been thriving, thanks in no small part to the tax exemptions it had been enjoying, and for the moment, the remaining Mayan tribes had remained quiet, if they knew what was good for them. All was looking well for the budding colonial capital, and with things looking up, the following year, the Montejistas did what up until now had seemed a pretty reliable play, appeal to the crown for more favor. So in early 1548, they sent yet another letter and delegation, led this time by one Fray Nicolás de Albacete, to Spain to ask the emperor to name a bishop of Yucatán, station him in Mérida in order to bolster its regional importance, that tariffs be repealed now for the whole territory of the Yucatán, not just the city of Mérida, and boldest of all, that the royal fifth tax that the property owners and encomenderos had to pay to the crown be exempt as well, to allow for economic growth, you see. The Adelantado additionally asked that his services be rewarded by increasing his salary, since it was insufficient to cover the vast personal expenses he had undertaken, subduing the many lands he had conquered in the name of the Spanish Empire. Finally, he asked to return Yucatan, Cozumel, and Tabasco to the Audencia of Mexico, likely requested due to the shifting tides of power brewing in the Audencia de Guatemala, that saw Alonso Maldonado removed from power in the same year of 1548 for not enforcing a certain set of laws aimed at protecting the rights of the natives the previously mentioned new laws. Just like that, another territory had slipped out of de Montejo's grip. This time around, however, Fray Albacete would return from his mission the following year of 1549 with concerning news. It appeared that attitudes were shifting in the court concerning de Montejo's activities. Pope Pablo III and Emperor Charles V, it turns out, had already decided to establish a diocese of Yucatan, Cozumel, and Tabasco, as well as the confirmation that Yucatan, Tabasco, and Cozumel be reincorporated into the Audencia de México. Concerningly for the Montejos, however, was the appointment of an oidor, or overseer, who would also be sent to, well, oversee, the transfer of power from one Audencia to the other. As territorial gains began to increase in all the western portions of Mexico, it was decided that the second Audencia of Mexico should be moved to Guadalajara and the seat of the new province of Nueva Galicia in 1548 to better administer the freshly conquered lands of what is now made up of the modern states of Jalisco, Zacatecas, and Aguascalientes. So it would be that on May 13, 1549, the elder Montejo would watch the further slipping of his governorships this time, he was forced to watch as Yucatan, Cozumel, and Tabasco all fell from his grip and into the lap of one Blas Cota, 
official oidor of the Audiencia de Guatemala, who on September 3rd, 1549, handed his powers off to Francisco de Herrera, official oidor de la Audiencia de México. Herrera would himself be replaced the following year by Diego Santillán, who was named by royal decree on the 16th of June, 1550, as the new Captain General of the Yucatán. Until December of that year, that is, when he would be replaced by a slightly more permanent solution, Alcalde Mayor de Yucatán, Gaspar Suárez de Avila. And we will get into what an Alcalde Mayor is in the next episode. This revolving door of forgettable overseers proved unable to agree on how best to incorporate the Yucatec lands into an Audencia of Mexico that now found its capital even further west than Mexico City. And this hemming and hawing would culminate on the 7th of July, 1550, when the Yucatan, Tabasco, and Cozumel territories anticlimactically fell back under the jurisdiction of the Audencia de los Confines, after years of trying to move it to Mexico. The Audencia de los Confines was by now stationed in the Honduran town of Gracias a Dios, and with the inclusion of these territories, it stretched from Tabasco and Chiapas to the southern border of Panama, covering the entire isthmus of Panama, the Yucatan Peninsula, the Petén Highlands, and all the lands in between. It would thus be the Audencia de los Confines that ultimately confirmed the administrators and collected the taxes of these lands for the next 10 years, until Tabasco would once again fall back under the Audencia de Mexico's venerable yoke by royal decree on the 9th of January, 1560. Having been pushed out of his position of power yet again, the elder Montejo did what he did best and traveled to Mexico City in July of 1550, where he sought the restitution of his many governorships. This would usually be the part where we go, and the Viceroy Mendoza gave the Montejo everything he asked for. But instead, he was told to wait a few weeks, which turned into a few months, until finally on the 26th of October, he was named by Viceroy Mendoza himself as Chief of the Armada, headed from Veracruz to Cuba, with a sizable quantity of gold and silver headed for the royal treasury in Spain. The elder Montejo was, of course, still el adelantado. That would never change. But Viceroy Mendoza could no longer reconfirm him as governor without royal approval for reasons he refused to be very clear on. Getting few answers out of the viceroy, the elder Montejo accepted the appointment and traveled to the island of Cuba, where El Adelantado finally realized why his old friend the Viceroy had been so uncharacteristically cold. De Montejo, it seemed, was now the target of a nefarious smear campaign by his enemies, with designs to denounce him and his supposed extreme and harsh treatment of the natives, going so far as to drawing various official charges against him and his leadership back in Spain. Now, Montejo the Elder certainly wasn't going around, hugging every mind he could in an effort to appease them. But by my counts, he had never seemed a necessarily cruel man, definitely pragmatic and ruthless enough to do what was necessary to achieve his lofty goals, but he seemed to have gone out of his way on more than one occasion to avoid violence if at all possible, and definitely treated the natives better than some of his contemporaries, that's for sure. Regardless of the validity of the charges, this would perk the ears of the aging conquistador, who decided to make one last voyage accompanying the gold to its final destination in the coffers of Spain, with the goal of speaking with the courts to both clear his name and recover as many governorships as possible in the process, a task he felt more than ready to take head on. 
He would land in Spain in early 1551 and would spend the next two years working tirelessly to clear his name from the many charges he now faced. Despite his energetic efforts, death came to surprise him in his beloved Salamanca, far away from the many Salamancas established in the distant Yucatan Peninsula. Francisco de Montejo the Elder, Adelantado of Yucatan, and at one time governor of Tabasco, the Yucatan, Cozumel, Honduras, and Chiapas, passed away on the 8th of September, 1553, at an impressive age of 74, in his villa in Salamanca, the hometown he adored. Dr. Diogenes proposes for us another date of death, that of March 25, 1553, poetically occurring on the anniversary of the Battle of Centla, which, in my opinion, is equally a fitting end to such a fascinating historical figure. The de Montejos had ruled for nearly 20 years in Tabasco, ever since 1527, when El Adelantado arrived with a head full of dreams to La Victoria with only his family, titles, and mandates. From there, they had been in power until 1550 and the arrival of Blas Cota, official oidor de la Audencia de los Confines. He would be survived by his wife, Doña Beatriz de Herrera, who would remarry in the future, and we'll get into that later, his daughter Catalina de Montejo y Maldonado, his son-in-law Alonso Maldonado, and his grandson Juan Maldonado y Montejo, who would later inherit his grandfather's title of Adelantado de Yucatán, and later pass it on to his own nephew, Alvarado Suárez Solís, whose descendants hold the title to this day. His death also meant that his legal trial was never concluded, and despite the many accomplishments throughout his life, the elder Montejo would die in considerable debt and with a slight shadow hanging over his family's legacy, having never cleared the charges made against him. The legacy of this historical figure and his family's exploits cannot be overstated. The Montejo's mark can still be found all over the territories they ruled, but the Yucatan and Merida specifically bear their mark prominently. Not only did they accomplish what multiple men before them had tried and failed, including themselves, but they laid the bloody groundwork for all future colonizations to come within that region. The pacification of the Maya as a people, however, would prove a much longer endeavor, for unlike the Aztecs, they had never been very centralized in their power. And so, like a swarm of ants, the Spanish would go colony to colony and province to province, stamping out the fires of rebellion and erecting churches and city halls in their ashes in efforts to remove every volatile element of resistance. El Adelantado was also survived by several children, including two mestizo boys he had with two different women named Juan and Diego Montejo, who lived in Nacajuca and Chicalango, respectively. His Spanish son, meanwhile, Francisco de Montejo y León el Mozo, had served as El Adelantado of the Yucatán in all but official titles, and would finally inherit and fill the role he was born for by becoming the next official Adelantado de Yucatán upon his father's passing. He would stay in Merida to live out the rest of his days with his wife and growing family, watching as his daughters married prominent Spanish nobles. And who could be more prominent than family, as the eldest daughter married Francisco Armamento de Montejo, the nephew, or in this case, the cousin-uncle, while the younger daughter would keep the cousin trend going and wed the cousin of Hernán Cortés. El Mozo enjoyed recognition and respect by Spanish and native alike for his considerable efforts in helping to pacify and establish the city of Mérida as well as the greater state of Yucatán and the Campechan coast. He died either in his home on February 8, 1574, 
or in Guatemala on the 8th of February, 1565. The sources are a bit conflicting, but we can be assured that he too carried out his family's legacy quite effectively. And the true conqueror of the Yucatan and his tremendously active family will make a grand resurgence in the Yucatan and Quintana Roo state episodes. So we have not heard the last of either father, son, or cousin. But what about the nephew, Francisco Armamento de Montejo? Well, after founding the Spanish city of Valladolid in the heart of the Yucatan, El Sobrino would return to Mérida after making it to the coast, marry his niece, and like his cousin, enjoy a life of repute in the capital as a councilman, dying in 1572 at the age of 55. His accomplishments would be overshadowed by his more famous relatives, but he nonetheless made various contributions to Mexico, such as the founding of Valladolid and its now famous convent and cobblestone streets, which we will visit when we explore the hot jungles of inner Yucatan. So, as the Montejos wave goodbye to Tabasco and our state focus, we must ask ourselves what we just witnessed. And, in my opinion, it would be nothing less than the birth of the colonial era in Tabasco and a glimpse at what colonial rule would look like throughout Spanish America. It would consist mainly of a gradual trickling in of Spanish colonists, coupled with a steady blending of native and European peoples, constantly tossed and turned with both military and religious campaigns of conquest or conversion, with the occasional earth-shattering development coming in from the motherland back in Spain. These events in Spain will become very important in the next few episodes and come to affect the day-to-day -day lives of the humble Tabascans simply trying to eke out a living in a hot and unforgiving land. Under the Montejos, Tabasco would see its borders reach some of its largest borders in its history, including the areas from the Rio Cupilco in modern-day Comalcalco to the misty temples of Yaxchilan in the heart of the Petén Highlands, all the way to the watery shores of the Laguna de Terminos and the modern coastal city of Sabancuy in northern Campeche. But it all started in La Victoria. And so, having just flung a tidal wave of place names and dates your way, Let's take a deep breath and try to go over everything now that we have a clear starting and stopping point with the rule of the Montejo in the region. After Cortes arrived and conquered Potonchan and tasted victory over Tabs Cobb and his Chocos after the Battle of Centla and the Charge of the Thirteen in 1519, a series of somewhat forgettable captains failed to hold the territory immediately surrounding Santa Maria de la Victoria until Juan de Vallecillo, in 1525, made enough gains to call it an actual colony. After Vallecillo failed due to illness, Hernán Cortés would appoint Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos, who spent the next few years in a political shoving match with the Montejistas over the control of the territory. Rebellions began to explode across the region during Gallegos' reign, all while Francisco de Montejo the Elder was in Spain, receiving the lifetime royal appointment of Adelantado de Yucatán in 1526. He then set off from San Lucar de Barrameda in 1527 to begin launching various attempts to take the Yucatán by force. He would initially fail and was instead convinced to take Tabasco first, so he acquired the governorship of the territory from a friendly but corrupt First Audencia de México and campaigned out of La Victoria to pacify the Centla region and push south towards the highlands of Chiapas on their march to pacify the rebellious Chontalpa region. Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos would continue to be a nuisance until 1535, but he was allowed to come back so many times because the Demontejos never really considered Tabasco as a real prize given the stifling heat, murderous natives, and lack of relevant resources. 
By comparison, the northern territories of Yucatan were rumored to hold various mines and rich lands within its jungles, and so the elder and his forces would use Tabasco primarily as a launching pad for future expeditions, never really taking much time to develop the city into anything more than a provincial backwater. From 1528 until 1540, things proceeded this way, with the Montejos only ever spending a few weeks in the capital before setting off petitioning Mexico City for more men, guns, and money, or struggling against some fellow conquistadors, either by squabbling politically as with Gallegos or idly posturing while playing a game of reeds with Alvarado, all while his territory fell deeper and deeper into neglect. By 1542, the Yucatan mission had been completed when Francisco de Montejo el Mozo founded the city of Mérida, and just like that, Tabasco would be completely tossed aside in favor of more lucrative and safer provinces. The wealth and economy of the indigenous Mesoamerican world pre-Spanish conquest had revolved around the canoe trade of cacao and coastal resources moving up and down the rivers that flowed through the Tabascan lands into the highlands of Chiapas and the Petén highlands of Guatemala which connected this coast to the greater Mayan world. This network, which had made the Choco kingdoms relevant and wealthy, would be shattered with the arrival of the Spanish and their ocean-spanning galleons that rendered the once rich and prosperous territory of Tabasco into a poor and dilapidated state. The Spanish would long avoid the region for the same reasons the Montejos likely did, but the men who would be assigned to deal with the problem of administering the place no one wanted would soon face a threat that none of them, or us, likely ever considered. The pirates. So despite it being the goodbye of the Montejos from Tabasco, and a goodbye from our story for a while, in reality they had been absent from the actual management of the province, let alone the actual territory itself, for years now. And in the next episode, we will quickly go through the men who were actually on the ground in La Victoria, and see who the Audencia of Mexico selected to lead the territory of Tabasco next, now that its first governor had finally relinquished his power after 23 long years. We will describe a new royal title that will come to be very important in Tabasco, as well as a tax that I will do my absolute best to make interesting, and we will begin to see a growing threat loom on the watery horizon, the pirates. So stay tuned for that episode and do share your thoughts, questions, or concerns to thehistoriesofmexico at gmail.com, as well as continue sharing the show if you are enjoying our deep dive into all 32 states' histories. Good luck to me, and we still have a lot to go through, so your continued support and encouragement is always appreciated. As always, thank you for listening. Gracias, y que viva bien. Adios, and goodbye for now.